Hey, everybody. I'm Dan Bro, along with my co-host, Matt Bruner, and welcome to the Real Estate Heroes podcast, the stories and lessons from real estate wholesalers, investors, and professionals who are changing lives and making an impact so that we can help you become the real estate hero. Now, just a quick reminder that this recording is an exclusive live event for our students only, and they have the opportunity to ask their questions, get answers from these industry titans. Now, if you want to be one of those lucky few, head over to actiondanbro.com and schedule a call or sign up. Today, I'd like to welcome our guest, Greg Helbeck. Uh, this guy, he's living in California. He's living in New York sometimes. Um, a sales conversion pro crushes big deals. Um, also a pro on marketing systems. I mean, this guy has done uh, over 100 deals in the past few years. Um, I mean, started real young, is just crushing it. And uh, Greg, super grateful to have you on. I love being a guest on podcasts. I host my own and I always get a little nervous preparing. So thank you so much for just allowing me to be the guest today. That's an honor to be here. Absolutely, man. Um, so let's get started with this. You know, anyone who doesn't know you, um, would you tell us how you got started in real estate? Sure. So I was a 20 year old kid down in uh, Rockland County, Orange County, New York. So right by New York City. And uh, I went to a uh, seminar on how to, uh, ironically, actually, the way I found out about this was on Snapchat. My friend sent me a snap and he's like, hey, you should go to the seminar. They're talking about doing real estate deals. And I've always kind of wanted to do this. And uh, I went down to this free seminar and uh, they were talking about double closing real estate deals. They didn't even talk about assignments. They're like, this is how you double close. You don't need your money. And I was in that seminar and I was uh, in college and I was like, I can definitely do this. Like I, I had like this weird feeling internally where I like, I just knew that like this was for me for some reason. I don't really know how to explain it. Maybe it was honestly God talking to me. I'm serious. And uh, I remember in that seminar, I turned around and looked at two of my friends and I said, I don't care if any one of you knuckleheads are doing this. I'm signing up for this upsell. So I'm paying the $2,000. If one of you was smart, you go in 50, 50 with me, you take a guess for free. We go a thousand each and we get rich. My one friend took me up on the offer and he is definitely a millionaire uh, for sure. And he made the right decision. I made the right decision, got into the business. And, um, you know, after a lot of failure, I've been able to uh, do a lot of uh, wholesale deals, rehab deals. And I have some rentals now, probably in two of the hardest markets in the area, in the country, the New York tri-state area and San Diego, which is crazy. So um, that's kind of the short story on it. But to be honest, it took me, you know, two years of banging my head against the wall, doing a deal every couple months, kind of scraping by until I started uh, learning how to like market properly and sell. And then it, it kind of took off from there. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're doing, you're, you're still wholesaling, you're flipping and you have rentals. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's, I mean, a lot of different stuff to manage. It is a lot. So about 60% of our stuff is wholesale just because we look at the, the deal. Like I, I look at every deal, like how can I rent it? How can I flip it? How can I wholesale it? And if I can wholesale it with the least amount of resistance and still make a good profit, we're going to wholesale it all day long because we're probably going to make a little bit less, but we're not going to have to be in the deal. Like in New York, it's a six, seven month sales cycle if you're rehabbing. 
So I look for that. And then the properties that I will keep as rentals, like one of them is like a commercial property. There's some mixed use action there. It's a total disaster. We can talk about that later. And then the other ones were just like home run deals we got from our marketing. They're like, you know, townhouses, condos, you know what I mean? That we're, we bought, you know, like at 40 cents on the dollar and they cash flow even with the HOA fees. Um, so I'm cherry picking the rentals. I really want to get more into those, but I've actually found it very difficult in uh, the Hudson Valley to, to keep rentals because of the high expenses and the very difficult uh, landlord laws that <laughs> New York offers. Man, that's why I'm not a landlord in New York anymore. For sure. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm curious because, uh, you know, we were talking about this in our coaching group, uh, maybe last week or two weeks ago. Uh, what's your criteria for what you would keep or flip versus wholesale? Great question. So in terms of what I would keep, uh, and let me just, I'm going to say keep as in take down versus assign or double close. If the property is unwholesalable. What I mean by that is like, if I know it's going to be impossible to get buyers in because I'm buying it sight unseen, or if, if I just have a gut feeling, if I even tell the seller, I need to come in here with a contractor, they're going to freak out. And as long as the deal still makes sense. And after I buy it and account for the financing and holding costs, I will keep that property and then either flip it or keep it as a rental. Also, if it is an absolute like grand slam deal where like the spread is like so big and I don't want to risk like a wholesale deal, maybe going off the rails. I'll just take private money out and take it down. In terms of me looking at wholesale deals, I, I kind of mentioned that earlier. So if I can make similar money doing a double close without a lot of resistance, I generally will try to wholesale that because the biggest thing I look for is my cash conversion cycle on my marketing. And if I can get paid in 60 days on a wholesale versus getting paid in six months on a rehab, I'll take a quick nickel over a slow dime just because I want to keep the cash flow in my business very consistent so I can pay my team. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so you mentioned like banging your head against the wall for like the first two years. Like you mentioned yeah. a couple of failures that you had, like, oh. what can you share, man? Like, what did that look like along the way? Sure. So I'll give you one that just still stings to this day. So I spent probably four hours, like the way I started was like bandit signs and like literally handwriting letters, like handwriting the letter and the envelope. And one time I, uh, I hand wrote a bunch of letters and got a terrible response rate. So then I said, this is inefficient. I'm going to get a printer and I'm going to print these letters out using mail merge. And then I'll just handwrite the envelopes and I'll save half of the time because I only have to write the envelopes. I did like 500 of them and I put the wrong phone number on the mail merge. So I spent time and money and got zero phone calls. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like usually I get like 40 calls or whatever. This is back before direct mail got crazy. And I realized I had the wrong number there and I, I absolutely wanted to jump off of my roof. So that was a painful one. Um, I've been involved in deals where like I, I kind of didn't know what I was doing in the beginning and I would like wholesale a house for five or 10 grand. When if I knew what I knew now, I would have made 80 because I, I just had no idea how to disposition. I had no idea how to take control over a conversation and con convince a seller that I was going to be the buyer and have that like certainty. Like I was not very good and confident because I didn't have the experience. So I left just hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table in deals that I did because I didn't know what I was doing. And um, yeah, just a lot of like rejection and like deals going to the attorney's office and then the attorney killing the deal or me not having enough money for a deposit because in New York, it was like really complicated to get a house under contract. And I was listening to all these gurus in like Texas and I'm like, oh, that, that makes sense, but it doesn't really work in my market that way. 
So uh, a lot of that, you know, compounded over time, getting attorneys send me letters in the mail, like, oh, stop mailing my client. And, you know, the sign police call, like all the little kind of failures added up. I mean, I've became, I'm immune to it now. Um, but in the beginning, it's, it's tough. I remember going out, putting out bandit signs on a Friday night, everyone else was partying. And I was like out in the middle of Newburgh, New York, putting bandit signs out in the ghetto and being like, I hope this works. Cause I'm, uh, I'm putting a lot of effort in. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about that. You know, you're talking about all these different marketing. Um, I know, I know you're a big fan of direct mail, um, too, so what are some tips that you would have for people to make direct mail really effective? I love that question. Um, so the number one thing I would say is you need to have a realistic understanding on number one, the cost per deal and the average cost per deal in your market. And every market is going to be different. If you're doing this in, in if you're doing this in like Kansas City, Kansas, it's going to be cheaper generally than like in my area in New York. So you got to know your assumable cost per deal. And then you need to also anticipate how many leads you really think you're going to need to get in order to get a deal, like lead, leads per contract, whatever that KPI is. And if you have a realistic expectation on those two numbers, and you're able to spend the money and the time that it's actually going to take to convert full cycle, and you can kind of, kind of have that as like a forecast, and then obviously follow through on that plan and then measure against your projections, you're going to be able to know if you're on track or off track. So that's like the part number one. Part number two, this is like a two or three part answer, is you need to understand that most of the deals are going to come from the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth touch, right? So a lot of people send out a thousand letters or postcards. They get 10 phone calls. Five of them tell them to screw off. They get five crappy leads and they say direct mail doesn't work. And then I say, well, how, when are you going to mail them again? They're like, well, why, why am I going to mail them again? I got 10 calls. I'm like, well, that's not how it works. So you need to be willing to mail at least four times at very minimum, if not really six or seven times to really see these campaigns come in full cycle. And then the third thing I would say in terms of being successful with direct mail is you got to be good at pulling, not these crazy, amazing lists that no one's pulling because we're all mailing the same people you got to make sure you don't screw up big time with the list. So what I mean by that is like, if you just pull a list of people on list source who just bought their property last year and they have no equity, you could send them the best mail piece in the world and you're going to get no results. So you got to at least mail people who have some equity. If not, you know, these niche lists, tax delinquent, you know, code shutoffs and all that kind of stuff. But I personally actually like more just the, I like mailing people who have a property that I really want to buy it has equity versus like they're on some crazy list, but maybe it's a bungalow in the middle of the woods. And I don't even want it, even if they were motivated. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things that I, I love that you talked about was you, you have to mail someone multiple times. There has oh. to be multiple touch points. And we get that that same concept carries over to the sales cycle. Once you do have them, like most, um, even if they, they call you and they leave a voicemail or they submit a web form. Like it on average is seven contacts, seven contact attempts before you actually get a hold of them. Oh, like yeah. that's the oh, average. Yeah. And yeah. most people give up after like two or three tries. Yeah. And so like just just staying consistent will get you so many more deals. Oh my gosh, dude. If everyone just did what you just said they would have 50 grand in the bank in six months because that that's where like everyone thinks it's hard, but I like when it's hard. I like when there's resistance because 
you're not unique to resistance. And I'm talking to any, like generally the public here, resistance is going to happen to everybody. So when it happens to you, this is what separates you from everyone else. And that's why like, you know, there's this crazy business failure rate is because resistance happens to everyone. It's all about how you deal with the resistance when you're doing marketing and when you're talking to people, when they're not answering the phone, that's supposed to happen. You know what I mean? It's not like abnormal. Absolutely. I love that, man. Like, so let's go from that big granular picture to like an actual, like actionable item. Like if you were just starting out, like what are the top things you would focus on and implement right away? Absolutely. Um, So what I would do if I was starting out and I had like a thousand dollars in the bank or something like that, I would go around, I would probably get five, depending on where I am, like if they drop me off in the Midwest or if they drop me off in like the Bay Area, I would go drive around and I would spend two to three hours a day just accumulating a driving for dollars list. And I wish I did this when I started. I didn't know anything about this. I was just going the hard way with bandit science, which ended up working. But I would get 500, five to 1500 like real crappy properties like vacant or dilapidated. And I would take that list. I would put it in some sort of a list software like a OLM investor hub or like Propster, whatever you want to use. There's a million out there now. And then I would take that list and I would systematically market to that list. And I would market to that list in a few different channels. I would cold call them, right? I would probably manually cold call them because I don't have the budget to really have like Zen call or anything like that. I would send them text messages, probably on my phone because I've done this before and it used to work really well before the industry changed a little bit. And I would also direct mail them. And I'd probably send them postcards if I can because that's just gonna be a little bit cheaper. And I would see what my response rate and my net leads would be. And then from there, I would continue that marketing cycle until I eventually got one of those properties under contract and then flipped it. The reason I said drive for dollars and look for 500 to 1500 vacants is because that's generally the number one indication of a deal, at least in my area, is the house is vacant. And you can go pull vacant lists and all that stuff. But if you really want to find leads that no one else can really find. If you're driving around for dollars, that's get, that list is going to be extremely unique because you're the only one, or maybe there's other people, but you personally saw that that house needed some updates, which generally indicates there's a problem you can solve. I love that. I love that your answer wasn't, you know, oh, you need $5,000 or, oh, you need $10,000. It was like, if I had a thousand dollars, I would just take action and yeah. just figure it out. Like if that means I text people from my cell phone, I text people from my cell phone. Yeah, like, for sure. The thing I do want to ask you, because I know you're into this because you're really into marketing and whatnot, is like, what are some of the most valuable tools or services that you're currently using? For sure. So the number one tool is going to be a little disappointing. It is a Google Sheets <laughs> for uh, all my direct mail campaigns. I just track like all the numbers in there. I'm like a grandpa. I have like my spreadsheet and I'm, you know, pecking away at that thing. So that's the first thing that is like the lifeblood of all of our direct mail campaigns to just track everything. The second thing I would say is a CRM, because if you're getting leads coming in and you don't have a database, I don't care if you're brand new, you you need to have a way to track that because there's so much money in your database as we speak. You'd be blown away if you actually just spent like three weeks going through your database and following up with the leads like there's deals sitting in there left and right. So the second thing would be a CRM. And the third thing that I love is I, I use CallRail. I started out and it was 30 bucks a month and now it's $350 a month because I have like a billion phone numbers and three or four team members on it. But uh, that software is awesome because it just allows us to see what campaigns are performing, what lists are performing, which mail drop is bringing the calls. We can, you know, we can internally call in there through the internet. We don't need to route it to our phones. 
And uh, I can literally go into my phone like after this interview and see how many leads came in during this interview. So those are the three pillars in terms of marketing. And if I had to throw another one in there, just that that it helps for list pulling is it, everyone talks about it. It's like the you know most popular thing now, but it's prop stream. I mean, it, it's crazy how the software is so cheap and compared to the value that it actually like provides investors and even agents, if you're a listing agent, I mean, the data you can pull and the amount of research you can do, you can do all this homework on these properties. I mean, I, I, I feel like that is almost like, it is like a staple to, to any investing business is having prop stream just to even look up the properties. Like you find a vacant house, you go on prop stream, you see who owns it. You don't have to go on the, the county website or anything like that. So those tools are, are pretty much all I use in my business for the most part. No, we don't do anything fancy here. Awesome. So one thing that stuck out to me, you, you talked about um, you have, you know, a few people on call rail now. Um, I'm curious myself, and I'm sure other people are as well. What role are you actually playing in your business right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So I just hired an acquisitions person a month ago. So up nice. until then, I was doing all the buying, all the selling and making sure the deals were stuck together. Like they were getting the glue was getting put together. Uh, I've had a lead manager this year. I just hired my first lead manager this year. So she does leads. She does, you know, follow up. She follows up with our database. She does my podcast. She does all that admin kind of stuff. And then now I have a, uh, I have an acquisitions manager who does the prospecting and, you know, takes the new calls and, you know, he deals with a lot of like the offer making. So at this point, what I do is I make sure that the offers that we're making are like the right, it's like the right number. Like I'm helping him with like, Hey, like you spoke to the seller. They want X. We need to be a Y let's come up with a game plan. So I help him a lot on the leads that he's working. So like he can, you know, communicate the message similar to how I would communicate the message. I also follow up with the, uh, well, not follow up, but I, I basically work the pipeline. Like we have like 16 properties right now going on. So I make sure that every deal that we have in the pipeline, like we have a game plan to get it to the finish line. So whether that's reaching out to a lawyer or reaching out to a title company or, you know, whatever. So it's a kind of a quasi transaction coordinator. And then I raise the money for the deals. So if I need to take a deal down with private money, I deal with investors and I deal with like the property managers, I deal with the agents. So I kind of like see that stuff. Um, but in terms of in the weeds, I'm still making some offers for sure. Um, I love it. I think it's fun. And I really love helping Brett on my team make offers because he can kind of see how I do it. And then he can like, kind of emulate me and I can learn from him. And it's kind of like a cool back and forth thing going on. Yeah. So you're still very involved in the day to day. If I went on vacation, I would be in deep trouble. I'll yeah. just <laughs> fully honest here, you know, got nothing to hide. <laughs> you know, I, I would be in trouble if I went on. I mean, if I had my phone with me, I'd be fine. But if I wanted to just unplug for a month, yeah, it would yeah. be chaos. Yeah. F -f Straight up. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, I mean, is that what you want to be doing or do you want to get to some other type of role where you're sort of taking a back seat? You know what? At this point, I was very reluctant to hire a team. And I, I felt like I kind of got to a level where I was kind of stuck. And like, mm -hmm. even though I wanted to spend more money on marketing, we didn't have the back end to fulfill it. So I think at this point, like as of this recording, what is it, October 2021, I really enjoy growing this business now with me being involved because I'm starting to just do more of the things that I really enjoy. And then once I can really get the system, like I haven't built the machine yet to where like, if I put an operations manager in, like there'd still be a lot of log jams that I got to fix. But so I feel like maybe in a year or two from now, I could really start to think about like getting more out of the weeds. Cause I would want to fill like a couple more key players in there. 
So I can have like, instead of having 10 employees, I'd rather have like four or five employees that are making more money individually that can really like own that role. So like they almost feel like a part owner in the business. So at this point, I really enjoy being in the weeds. I mean, sometimes I obviously have days that aren't so pleasant, but I, I think back to like what, what it could be. Why we say this thing, it could be worse. You know, deal doesn't work out. You know, seller's angry, could be worse. Like I'm living my dream. I live in California. I got a house in New York. You know, I can travel, I can, you know, do this virtually. I, but we buy all of our houses virtually. Like we don't go on appointments. So, um, you know, and I've been really big on like, the 80, 20 rule and like time blocking. So like, I still have a lot of time during the day where, you know, I'm going to the beach or going for a hike or playing golf. So I try to really chunk my work up to where when I'm working, I'm doing effective needle moving activities. Long answer for a short question. Oh, that's perfect. I appreciate the value, man. Yeah. And then, and then kind of as that operations person in the business, like, I want to know, like, how are you identifying the things that are holding you back? So you mentioned some log jams, like, yeah. How are you identifying them? How do you overcome them? Like, what's your process for that? Great question. So like an example would be like our dispositions process right now. Like the log jam is that I'm the one who's fulfilling that. So like, I don't actually go to the houses and show the buyers. Like I have someone who will go to the property, but I'm the one, you know, sending the email out, dealing with the, because like we do it, like we have like an auction system and it gets very hairy because all the buyers start competing and they start getting angry. And then like, they don't want to lose the deal. So like, it, 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 it would be hard for me to put an admin in there and like have them be okay because it gets like, they, because they know me, I'm the guy who's been selling their properties for five years. So right now, like our dispositions process is heavily contingent upon me negotiating with those, those buyers. So in order for me to remove that like bottleneck, I would need to bring on a disposition person. I would need to make sure that the, the compensation structure would align with their skill set. You know what I mean? So I got to make sure that I have $120,000 a year worth of value I can bring them to where I can bring somebody on who's that high level, who's going to be able to really run that machine for me. So I would need to bring a disposition for someone who really can, can deal with people and, and have kind of like a mini sales role in terms of like selling of the properties. And then also make sure that, um, you know, that system can get streamlined to where like we have a process where we send an email, we get the, the interest, we set up a one-time showing, the showing happens, we get our offers, we select the offer, we vet the offer, we move it to the attorney's office. And then hopefully we close in like, you know, 60 days because in New York, it takes forever to close. So like our cycle just takes, you know, an extra one or two months compared to the other markets around the country. New York is nuts, man. Um, no, one no thing I do want to dive into is you mentioned like a bidding system for your dispositions. Like, Tell me more about that. that yeah, so I got to give credit to Todd Toback because I learned it from him. So I did not invent this. Um, so basically he was talking about, he's like, he actually lives out in San Diego and he was talking about like doing big wholesale deals and, and not only getting good prices from sellers, but getting buyers to pay premiums. So he talks about like, instead of like selling it to your buddy who you know, who's always going to close, like, cause it's easy and comfortable. You put it out to the market at a low price on purpose and you let the market bid the price. I can give you guys a case study on this too, just to kind of wrap it up with a bow, but basically put it out to the, to the audience, to your list and say, listen, um, this is going to go for highest and best most likely. So if you're interested and the price isn't a problem, see if you'll qualify for the showing. And then if they qualify for the showing, which basically means like they're not jerking your, they're not like kicking your tires. Like they're actually serious about buying. They have proof of funds. They're not going to, try to get a, like a regular mortgage to buy it. They have to use cash or hard money. If they go to the showing and now they see that there is six or seven or eight or nine of their, you know, friends, competitors there, 
they know that this thing is, is, is it's going to go to highest and best. So like now, like the, let's say I put it out at two 30, you know, and that was low on purpose. I'm going to start getting people after the show and saying, Hey, where do I got to be at? Where do I got to be at? Where do I got to be at? And then they're automatically, they're going to start bidding that property up just because they know there's competition and there's only one house. So it's really uncomfortable because like people think you got to do them a favor and it, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's, it's how you, you, you don't leave money on the table on these wholesale deals. So basically you auction it off that way. I generally send an email and I'll say, Hey, highest and best is due at, you know, 12 PM on Friday. So put your best offer in and, you know, we track all this on Google to make sure like we know who we're dealing with. And then generally that the best offer that comes in through email, we select that offer and then we move them to the finish line. And I've measured this system against the old way I used to do it. And like, we're getting like 20, 30, $40,000 more than we were originally getting on some properties, not all properties, but some properties we're, we were leaving that much money on the table just because we were not doing it like the, the way we're doing it a different way. It used to be like first person to pay this price wins. But then I'm like, wait a minute, if it was that easy to sell the property, I probably could have gotten more money for it, especially with the way the market is now. So that's like high level how we do it. I'll give you a quick example because this, this is like, it, it's very uncomfortable. So about a month and a half ago, got a house out here in California. It was a smoking deal right off like smoking deal. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to put this out on purpose for 520. I had it for 490. I'm going to put this out on purpose for 520. And I'm going to see what happens. I send an email literally an hour later. There's like 20 people like, dude, I got to see this. Like what I, I need this. And I'm like, okay, listen, it's going to be a one-time showing. There's going to be a ton of people in there. It's going to be pandemonium. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to put your best offer in and we'll see where the chips fall. I sell the property for 561, right? So put it out of 520, sold it for 561, you know, because I auctioned it off. So, I mean, it, any market you could do this, you're going to make an extra 10, 15, 20, 30, sometimes $40,000 just by creating that urgency and that competition and that scarcity between these buyers. And they know that they got to put their best foot forward and perform. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. It's um, chaos though. It is not, it's, yeah. that's why it's hard to scale because it's like, it's chaos. It's right. not easy to do. Not one yet. question I have around it. So you mentioned, you know, you do one mass showing. Yeah. Uh, now in my experience, that's way more difficult if it's an occupied property. It, so exactly. how do you manage that? This is what you do, man. You, uh, you tell the seller and this, you got it. It's all about like setting the stage in the beginning. Hey, listen, I told you I need to get in here once or twice before we close. I want to get in for the first time now. I'm going to bring about 10 to 15 people with me. And it's probably going to be bonkers for about an hour. We're going to be here for an hour tops. It's going to be absolute chaos here. There's probably going to be a bunch of people walking around the house. And are you okay with that? And if they say they're okay with that, you're good to go. If they start giving you like some pushback and some resistance, then what I do is I pivot. I tell the buyers, listen, occupied property, it's going to be very, very difficult to get everyone in here. So in order to even qualify to be in the top three, I need to have virtual offers. I gave you a hundred pictures for that reason. And if you still think you could be in my ballpark or somewhere near it, if not higher, you'll qualify as one of the three to go to the showing. And then I'll take three in there. And then it's a lot easier because you have three people instead of 10. But it's, it's very difficult, man. I mean, we run into snags all the time doing this and it, it, it bottlenecks our dispositions because you get angry sellers, you get buyers who are confused. Um, but the way I look at it, it's like, if I got to get uncomfortable to make an extra 30 grand and everyone's happy, I'll do it. It's the same lead, the same lead. So I'm going to just try to squeeze all the juice I can out of it.
Yeah, it, it seems like inefficient, but more effective. It, 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 you just put <laughs> it on the head. It's very inefficient, um, especially because I'm never even there. So they, they, they know Greg's the guy, but Greg isn't even here. Like, mm. so they're, they're just like, it's kind of crazy, but it's, it's worked enough times to where we do it now. You know what I mean? But uh, it's, it doesn't get easier for sure because there's always, it's, you always have a new seller. You got buyer. It's just, but it works, you know, it works. It's uncomfortable, but um, that's why another thing I would say is the best way also to get big wholesale fees is if you can buy the house regardless. Like if you're going to be buying the property regardless, you can put it out wholesale and see if you can get your, your Hail Mary number. But you know, either way, you're closing on that property, and you're going to make 40 grand rehabbing it. So you can make more money wholesaling because like, you're kind of like, what's there's that, like whoever needs it the least always wins. Like you kind of have that going for you. Yeah. I just closed on one like that yesterday and just signed on another one like that last week. Yeah. And, you know, bought them for, I, I think, you know, like 45 cents on the dollar, oh. like, like need very, very little work, like less than a week's worth of rehab, like maybe just a clean out and just yeah. slap it on the market. Um, it. Yeah, those ones are the best. Those are good ones. I love the good old wholetail, man. That's my my absolute favorite when uh, when they work. Oh, yeah. Um, so one other thing that, that you had mentioned that um, I actually didn't know was that so you guys are doing virtual closings, uh, oh, yeah. or, or locking up the deals virtual. So you know, I'm curious, you know, how do you make that work? And, and what are your top tips for someone who would be maybe thinking about doing it virtually versus in person? For sure. The first thing I would say is if the seller is okay, right off the bat from doing the entire process virtually, that's going to obviously make your life a lot easier. If they are insisting on an appointment, if they're just like, I need you to see my house, I have someone in New York who can go see the house on my behalf. And that's not a problem. But assuming they're okay doing it virtually, and also if you know your, so the key is you got to know, if you don't know your market, you're in trouble doing this because you're not going to know what to offer. But if you know the ARVs and you have Redfin and the MLS and even PropStream, and you can get very clear on that ARV, and then if you, if you either are a rehabber, if you know a rehabber, or if you just know your repair numbers just by maybe doing a project or two, and you know worst, like I call it worst case scenario rehab, that's how I do it. And then if I'm pleasantly surprised, I'm pleasantly surprised. You know, the ARV and the worst case scenario rehab, especially like depending on like if there's a septic tank, but that's a whole other topic. If you know those two numbers, it's honestly, I found it easier to do it virtual because it takes a lot of the drama out of like, now you're driving 30 minutes to the house. Now you're 30 minutes invested into the house. Now you want to get the house because you've been there for 30 minutes and then you got to drive back. And then the seller's daughter's there and she's like a meth head and living in the kitchen and you're like freaked out. So I've found it easier to do it virtually, especially because if you know those two numbers, you can make more offers over the phone just from an efficiency standpoint. And even if you convert lower, you're still going to make more money and you're, you're, stream, you're going to streamline that process for your acquisitions person, assuming he knows the numbers and you know the numbers. It actually is it's more efficient. It might not be as effective, but the number, the volume will make up for like maybe the, like the lower-ish conversion. And I've actually found too, I had a, a scenario last month where you know, the worst thing you want to hear as an investor is, hey, I got three other investors looking at it. You're my first one. Uh, we're going to meet with three others. And I'm like, oh, no, here we go again. Because before I hired Brett, I said, what would it take for me to be the buyer? And you can just tell the other investors to, to cancel their appointment. She goes, well, how fast can you close? I said, I can close whenever you want. It's up to you. I said, would I add certainty to your situation if I can do this all over the phone so you don't have to meet with these investors and I can give you a guaranteed price right now? She said, yeah, if you could give me a price over the phone, 
I will tell the other investors to scram off, assuming I like your price. So I actually won that deal over the phone, over the other investors who were going to go there the next day because I asked her what she thought was most important to her. And especially with COVID, you know, being the way it was back in 2020, people are more accustomed to doing things virtually now. And a lot of our properties we buy, they're landlords, they're out of state, they're out of town, they're inherited properties, they're calling from Virginia, their house is in New York. Um, so it's actually been pretty similar because a lot of the owners either way don't even live at the house. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that virtual comment. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, uh, some of the old school people say, you got to go in person. If, you, if you're not going in person, your closing ratio is going to be less than half. You know what, the, the last four virtual appointments I've had, I've, I've bet, I, I've, I'm four for four on the last yeah. four that I did. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I haven't seen a drop in closing rate. I haven't seen it either. I haven't seen a, a big, like, like maybe over time a little bit, but I'm like, if I don't need, like, in, especially in California, if I got to drive an hour in California yeah. traffic, it's like, that's three hours of my day, my energy, you know, yeah. like, it's just not, it's the way of the old age, you know what I mean? And listen, if it's a, if someone calls and they're like, I need to sell this house tomorrow, come over and make me an offer. Like, I, I'm probably going to go to that, you know, Brett's probably going to go there, but like that's really the exception now and, and not the rule anymore. And like, I think there's so many people now doing it virtually. Like it's such a common thing. Yeah. It's not like, it's like this unique, like, oh my gosh, how do you do that? Like now, like every other investor is doing it virtually, which is great. You know, it allows you to, to really not have your, your market, your local market even be an objection. I mean, you I do it in my local market, but like it, you could technically buy anywhere, you know, and it, it makes this business that much more, uh, you know, fruitful. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, a side benefit of it, but, you know, COVID has sort of normalized all this virtual stuff. Yes. Like, you know, you can buy cars virtually now. You can, like, all these seminars are virtual. Like, everything, you can buy groceries. Now you can get them delivered to you, no matter where you live. Like, everything is just virtual now. So it's, like, just way more normal. Totally. We, I do virtual rehabs. You know, I tell the yeah. contractor to fail. I'm like, FaceTime me, dude. I, even if I was living, like I lived, I moved back to New York for five months this summer. And I'm like, Leonardo, dude, I'm not driving to the house. I'm like, just FaceTime me. I'll look at yeah. the damn work. Like, I, yeah. you know, whether I'm there or not, like I realized that me going to a property at a certain point doesn't add a lot of value in the process. Cause the yeah. end goal is to make the offer and solve a problem. And if I'm physically there, it doesn't add as much value as I need in order to justify investing that time in that prospect. So because of that, we do it over the phone. Yeah, I, I think, so what I always tell people is that over the phone, it's harder to build rapport because you don't yeah. have body language, you don't have facial expressions, you don't have gestures, all that stuff. But then you just put more emphasis on the other things, your tonality, your pace, your volume, all that stuff. And so it can easily be overcome if you know how to do it. 100%, 100%. And it, it just makes it, especially too for new investors, like it's a little scary to go to a stranger's house, right? But if you can practice on the phone with people, like it, it, it takes a lot of the fear out of it too. It's, the key though is you gotta know the, you gotta know those two numbers, the ARV, and then what is the worst case scenario rehab going to be? Because, it, you know, the thing with virtual, I will say, is if someone doesn't know what they're doing and they're making offers over the phone, they, they, could, they could be making offers and they're, they're, they're getting too many accepted because their numbers aren't accurate. So I always like to send a home inspector there after the fact to make sure that I didn't screw anything up. Yep. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, on the note of, you know, talking about different strategies and tactics and things, um, what's some bad advice that you hear being given out in the industry? <laughs> so I heard advice. I don't know who it was from, but somebody said a while ago, like, you don't need to know anything about real estate. You got to just uh, know how to like, it was some, basically the, it was like, I don't know anything about real estate. I just, you know, make offers and it works out. And I, I think that's really bad advice for this reason. So I have a house in New Jersey right now. We're wholesaling. There were two buried underground oil tanks. Hmm. And if I didn't know anything about real estate, that $30,000 deal would have been kapoof that we're hopefully closing next week. So you need to know a lot about real estate. You need to know how the process works. You need to know how a attorney process works. You need to know what happens when you have a buried oil tank or how to deal with the state, how to get it pulled out of the ground, how to negotiate a credit. So how to posture up with like, there's so many little nuances that come with experience that, that it's worth learning. Cause then if you're going to bring on a team and you don't know anything about real estate, how are they supposed to trust that you can pay them? Right. If you don't know what you're doing yourself, it's like the blind leading the blind. So that's some real estate advice I heard that uh, is, is, is really bad and they should definitely not take it. Another piece of advice I've heard that is, um, I get why they say it, but I would say that like fail forward, which is true. Yes, you're going to fail and hopefully you fail yourself forward. But if you're failing and you're not learning why you're failing, you're going to just spin your wheels and you're going to be frustrated and quit. So every time you fail, you got to try to get to the root reason on why you failed and what caused that to fail. So you can make that be a problem you can solve. So then next time it happens, you don't do the same mistake twice. So I guess fail forward. You got to take that with a grain of salt and make sure you're learning your lessons the right way. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of lessons, um, what are some of your favorite books that you would recommend people read? Oh man. Um, so real estate books or business books or just personal development books? Uh, anything that you think would help someone who's looking to get into this business. And okay. you know, that, that, I mean, personal development is a huge piece of that. So whatever you would think, if you had to, you know, just pick a few that come to mind. There's a book called, uh, it's Jim Rohn. It's called uh, The Art of Exceptional Living by Jim Rohn. It's super old. It's like only on Audible. I've listened to that thing over 25 times and it's like wow. part of my DNA. It's part of like my brain wiring. So that book is phenomenal. A lot of these personal development guys now got their stuff from Jim Rohn. Yep. No secret about that. He's like the goat. Uh, so The Art of Exceptional Living is a great book. Another book that I really love in terms of business is it's called Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. Oh, yeah. And that book talks a lot about how to manage. It's really how to manage your money and how to manage your cash flow. And a lot of people will start making money in this business and then they just plow it all back into their business. They, they don't account for taxes. They don't account for their profit. They don't like think about the lifestyle they want to live and how much money it's really going to cost. So Profit First is a really good like cash flow book. And then to give you another really impactful like real estate book that I read, uh, this is a while ago, it's called The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Yep. And he talks about like the models on how people like, it systematically teaches you how to become a millionaire, like logically and then emotionally through real estate. It's like this huge textbook almost. So those books are, are freaking awesome for this business for sure. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I've read the second two, not the first one, um, but- I think the the big lesson to come out of that is that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like yeah. so many, I see so many new investors or wholesalers trying to get into it and like put their own spin on it, get all creative, like try to make all this new stuff. Like guys, you don't have to do that. Like 
you're yeah. just you're just wasting so much time like get the fundamentals down first and then once you're really good at that then you can try being creative like now is not the time to be creative now is time to get the basics down and just get really good at that totally man yeah and and the, the good thing now i mean even back when i started there was information online but the amount of information online now like compared to five years ago six years ago it's just crazy you could literally find out anything on the internet I mean, I, I honestly request, I, I suggest paying for masterminds and coaches. I think that's when you put skin in the game, you're going to be more invested, right? Like if I get a book for 15 bucks, that book could teach me how to make $10 billion. But if I only paid 15 bucks for it, I didn't like the strategies. I'd probably just throw it away. But if that book cost me 25 grand, you best bet I'm going to be implementing that book. Cause I'm like, dang, I don't want to lose my 25 grand. So it's all about, I think when you pay, you pay attention. And I'm, I'm a big believer in paying consultants, coaches, and masterminds. I'm part of it myself. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, and, and part of that you're talking about, you know, you can learn online, like truthfully with how much information there is online, you can learn a lot. Um, the difficult part is that there's so much and people, they get confused and they, they try to learn a little bit from this person, a little bit from this person, a little bit yeah. from that person. And then they end up with, you know, these three different strategies and they try putting it all together and it just doesn't work. Yeah. Like it, it, there's too many different ideas, too many distractions. Like sometimes what you got to do is just follow one track until you're successful. Exactly. And then after you're successful, figure out if you want to stay on that track or pivot. Like, and I, I love how you made that point because like, I'll give you an example. Like some people are like, Oh, cold calling, stupid. Texting is stupid. Oh, and then it's like, do PPC marketing. And then like they try PPC, they blow their ad budget and then they're like calling and it's like, it's just chaos. If you do any marketing channel consistently and systematically, you're going to make money. It's math. It's just going to be, it's a fact of numbers, getting your leads, figuring out your cost per lead. It's literally math. Calling is going to be more work, but cheaper. PPC is going to be less work, but more expensive. Anything will work if you actually work it. You know what I mean? That's like, that's like with any marketing channel I've ever done. When I actually like committed to it, it worked every time. Cause yeah. I'm like, in it for like six to 12 months. You know what I mean? I had enough time to see it pan out. That's it. I'm so glad you said that like consistency in marketing, like yeah. in giving it enough time to work. Like when people, they start a marketing strategy and then, you know, they give it like a few weeks or a month and they say, Oh, it didn't work. I'm like, ah, you didn't give it enough time. Like it's yeah. too small of a sample size. Yes. Like you can't judge the success or failure of something based off that short a period of time. Like sometimes it just, it just takes time. Like, especially direct mail, oh, like yeah. you're not going to know your ROI on direct mail for six to 12 months. hundred percent. Like, yeah. Yeah. Especially in New York. I mean, my goodness. I mean, it, we have wholesale deals that take five months and right. I'm like, it's crazy. You know, it is what it is. What am I going to do? You know, I have to go somewhere else, but it, it's like, that's where, it's like investors, if they just took a couple steps forward every day and track their numbers, they would be blown away in 12 months with what they could do. But if they like go hard for 30 days and then get disappointed that they got 10 leads and they spent two grand, like you have to let time average your numbers out or else you're just, you're going to be like, you know, setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. And actually, you know, two grand for 10 leads for the national average, like 200 bucks a lead 
actually isn't bad. That's actually really good. TV, if it's TV or Google, that's really good. Yeah. Even direct mail. I would I would accept that with direct mail because I don't need to get that many leads on direct mail to, to get yep. a deal. So it's all relative, you know. Mm-hmm. But you learn that from experience. Like people are so scared to start. Like if they just started and learned like how the marketplace works, they're gonna learn so much just with the right action and then mentors and then learning on their own, like to kind of combine those two. You know, they'll be blown away with what they can do in a couple of years if they really just take it seriously and treat this the way it needs to be treated. Yeah, 100% agree with you, man. For sure. On that note, like what are some of the resources you've found that have been most impactful? Yeah, so in terms of like learning marketing, I there's actually a book called uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. I didn't mention that. Actually. It's not a marketing book at all, but it talks so about this uh, like five-step goal achieving process, like set goals, get to the problems, figure out the root problems, design solutions, and then execute the solutions. You could take that and do it with anything, but I actually started doing that with marketing back in 2018 and it exploded my business because I would like set my numbers. I would like line up what I thought the goal was. And then I would like take the action and see what ended up happening. And then they'd be like, oh, well, why were my leads then? Well, let me, if I fix this and then, you know, it would shoot the leads up. So being able to like, you know, take some non-real estate related uh, information and apply it to marketing. So that principles book helped me get really good at direct marketing. Um, Dan Kennedy, uh, is a big marketer, read a lot of his books that stuff like direct response, how to track your numbers and hold your, call it like holding your money accountable for results. Uh, so you don't just like spend money and be like, Oh, I hope I get my money back in six months. It's like, well, how many leads did you get? What was your cost per lead? And how many leads do you need to get to get a deal? And then what's the, the profit look like? So, um, Dan Kennedy, uh, Ray Dalio's principles, that stuff's helped me. Um, I'm a part of a, a mastermind called Investor Fuel. That that um, mastermind helped me a lot with like learning how to do direct mail the right way, how to like mail lists the right way, like how, like what list to put, like the unknown equity list and like you know long term ownership list. Um, and then I'm trying to think of some other like um, you know I listen to a lot of podcasts on my own. Like I'm always like browsing you know Spotify looking for like I, I like to keyword search stuff. So like if I need to solve a problem in my business, I'll just like keyword search it and then find a podcast on that. You know, I don't really like listen to podcasts like sequentially, like in order. I, I like look for what I'm trying to solve and then probably listen to that podcast three or four times because the second and third time I'll get something different that I didn't pick up the first time. So my favorite part from this conversation has been like, so far it's like your business is just math. <laughs> like virtual <laughs> yeah. acquisitions is just math. Like you figure yeah. out your ARV, you figure out your rehab and then that gives you your like um, maximum allowable offer. And then when you're talking about marketing, it's just math for you. Like <laughs> it's math now, but in the beginning it was like trying to do Pythagorean's theorem. Cause I had so much emotion invested to it. Cause I didn't have like the results, like, because over time you're going to get results, whether they're good or bad. And now that I've done enough marketing and spent a lot of money in marketing, I know like through the, throughout the course of history, what ends up happening, you know what I mean? But a lot of new investors get stuck because they, they haven't done it. So if they can lean on a group or a coaching program or someone who's done hundreds of houses, they can give them like the ballpoint, like the, the, the ballpark framework. I'm like, hey, if you send out this many mailers, you should expect to get this many calls, worst case scenario, out of these calls, you should get about this many leads. And then you should get about this many leads to get a deal on average. And you can take someone else's data and use it as like a measuring stick so you can see if you're on or off track you know, which was a big hack for someone who's brand new. Yeah. I love that. Or kind of on that note, like what are some of the habits or like beliefs that like have had a huge impact for you that you've kind of developed over the past few years? 
for sure. Um, I learned this from Ed Milet and it's like your self-confidence raises when you keep promises you make to yourself and you operate with integrity with yourself. So like when I say like, I'm going to run two and a half miles on the treadmill today at the gym and I follow through with that small thing, even though it's not easy, that builds my self-confidence and my momentum. So when I'm getting on the phone on a, on a seller call or I'm working a big deal out, I know I'm going to be able to get this deal closed because I'm someone who keeps the promises and I believe in myself because I do what I say I'm going to do. It's like this subconscious hack thing. But like, if you get in the habit where like you say you're going to make 10 phone calls and you only make five and you do that every single day, you're going to start to believe you're, you're not going to really believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Cause like, if you don't do the small things, when the big things come up, you're, you're not going to have that track record with yourself to actually execute them. So that's a big one, self-confidence. And then another big one I would say is like, you know, just being like, when I set a goal, like when I set a goal, I need to really walk through the logical format and system, or as Ray Dahlia would say, the machine to actually put that goal together, right? Because like I could say I want to make $10 million next year, which would be cool. I'm probably not going to get there yet. But if I were to put that goal out there, I need to have like a real logical like system and machine to follow. So like every day, me and the team would be taking steps to hit that number. I used to just set these goals and like, like oh, maybe I'll make, get more deals this month. And I would just kind of run around like a chicken with my head cut off. So being able to like systematically kind of reverse engineer goals, that's been a big one. And then the last one I would say is like in terms of a habit, I'm a big fan of reading. So I read a lot. I listen to a ton of Audible. I'm listening to podcasts all the time. I'm reading articles online. Um, and then on the health side, I would say like staying hydrated all day. That's like a little thing that like, it's not that, you know, sexy, but like I drink at least a gallon of water a day. And that gives me as much energy as I need all day long. Cause if you don't feel good, you don't perform good. So like hydrating alone is just so important for your energy and like your, you know, you're getting toxins out of your body and things like that. So those are some, some hacks I do. I think being hydrated is incredibly sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, drinking sink water from California, man. That, that's how I, I get my uh, my tan here at the beach. You know. There you go. Um, so before we get to student questions, I, I have one more. Um, sure. If you could put one thing on a billboard that everyone would see, what would it be? Believe in yourself. That sounds really cheesy, but it's... If you just take that seriously, I mean, you could do some really impressive things. I mean, I was a 20-year-old kid, didn't grow up rich, had no reason to get wealthy in real estate or had no, like, there was, it wasn't like I was going to, you know, be this prodigy when I was a young kid. Like, I, I believed in myself. I knew what I wanted and I followed through with that. Still not easy to this day, but it's amazing what you can do in a relatively short period of time if you actually have the belief that you can make it happen. But that starts with doing what you say you're going to do. Like you believe in yourself, but if you don't do the things you say you're going to do, you're, you're going to have this like subconscious block where you don't like, like you want something, but you know, you can't do it because there's something wrong with your subconscious because you don't do what you say you're going to do. So it's like that combination, but yeah, believe in yourself. Love it. Awesome, man. So let's take some of our questions from our live students. So from Kevin, Kevin is wondering what made it, or sorry, from Torrent. What made it click for you and your marketing processes to start getting consistent deals? Great question. So number one, it was, it was really setting like a forecast on what I thought would happen if I took a certain amount of action or spent a certain amount of money. 
and then always tracking the data from every workday to see the KPIs line up with my forecast. So for example, let's say I'm gonna spend $5,000 a month in marketing and I'm gonna get, I'm, I'm forecasting that I'm gonna get, I don't know, 50 leads or something like that. Every day I'll track my numbers and see how many leads that I get today and am I on track to hit my forecast? And if I hit my forecast, am I gonna hit my goal? Does that make sense? Yeah, so basically you're going to see what the industry average is or talk to other investors, use that number to forecast out what you can expect back. Yes. And then implement the marketing effort that you're talking about. Exactly. And then if like, if I'm on track, like, let's say like I, I, I needed in theory, like 20 leads to get a deal and I got 30 leads and I still didn't have a deal. At that point, there's a little bit of a discrepancy. And I would say, all right, well, why haven't I gotten a deal yet? Are these leads less quality? Am I like, so you're able to kind of like, when you have something to measure against, you can see like really what problem you need to fix. Cause it's all about fixing like the right problem in your marketing. If it's, if you're fixing a problem, that's not the right problem. You're still going to be stuck in the same place. So like the reason I like to forecast my metrics is because I, I like to kind of measure up to see if I'm on or off track. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you just mentioned fixing the right problem. Yeah. Because people's, some people will say like all the time, they're like, I just need to spend more money in marketing. Oh, like, that well, 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 hold on. Like, yeah. you don't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to evaluate each different part of it. Like, what's how's your conversion rate and how's that change like is it worse than it was before how about your number of appointments has that gone down how about your number of leads what about your ad spend did you reduce your ad spend like and, and how effective is that in bringing in leads so like looking at all those different ratios because it's not just like the top of the funnel it's not just oh. get more leads in there like that's a great way to waste a lot of money so um i'm just really glad you mentioned that yeah, I, I've tried to fix the wrong problem a lot of times and uh, it, it's not fun because you're like thinking you made all this progress and then you're like, wait a minute, I'm still in trouble. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. Awesome, man. All right. So next question up is what is your competitive edge in those highly competitive markets? I don't know if you guys are going to like this, but I'm an absolute psychopath like with, with like winning deals over other people. It, it is, if you ask Brett, he would say Hellbeck is absolutely out of his mind. I want, if I'm competing and a lot of the competitors I know and we're friendly, if, if, if I'm up against them, I will do what it takes to get that house in my control. Obviously I'm not going to get every house, but I will do what it takes to win. And I convince, sometimes I have to convince the seller, like not by being pushy, but getting them to believe that I'm so um, not motivated to buy their house, but like, convinced on the certainty I can provide them, that can give me an edge over the knucklehead I'm competing with. Because I do not like losing to my competitors. It literally makes me almost sick to my stomach. Because I look at it, it's like they're taking $30,000 from me and there's no reason they should have my $30,000. And that's how I think about it. And I know it's kind of sick, but like our market gets so crazy. I, I had to be like this or else I'd kind of be getting walked all over the place. So I really try to find a way to like, how do I add more value to this person? And how do I show to them that I'm a better problem solver than these other knuckleheads because I don't want them taking my freaking money. And it, it's nuts, but you know, in San Diego, even in San Diego, it, it's, it gets crazy out here. Like it, it is like the wild west. So that, that definitely helps me out. Love it. And then, so when you're doing your marketing campaigns, uh, another question is, do you keep the same mailers or do you switch it up within the seven touches or how many touches are you doing? What does your direct mail campaign look like? Yeah, so I usually like to forecast out six mail drops. And then after six, usually we'll have a solid ROAS, which is return on ad spend. 
if I get my money back in two or three or four drops for some reason, like everything else is almost like just free money at that point. Cause I was like budgeting for X, we ended up making Y back. So now everything else is like a free deal the way I look at it. But in terms of the actual mail pieces, I send sometimes the same postcard two times in a row, like a doodle postcard or like what everyone else is sending. And I, I still get responses and, and profitability from that. So like, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel, but sometimes I'll make like some weird postcard up. Like I'll take something on like a mailhouse website and I'll like change the colors and maybe have it say a different message. But generally it's like a doodle postcard, which is a handwritten postcard, or it's like a, um, like a handwritten letter or something like that, which would boost response rates too. Um, but honestly, the biggest thing I've found is if you're going to mail and you want to mail in a sequence, you like Dan said this earlier, you got to have a big enough sample size to really know if you're getting a true response, like a, a good response rate or a bad response rate. If you mail a hundred letters or like, you're not going to know, you're, you're not going to have enough data, but if you're mailing five, 10,000, you, you know, prospects, you're going to really know what that response is, is going to look like. And it also is going to depend on your market. Like my response rates in New York and California are <laughs> But the deal size is big, so it doesn't really matter because I know we're still going to be profitable over the long run. Love it. And then the final question from our student, Kevin, is how do you split up calls with mailers? In terms of like, uh, like how to, like, what does the call system look like? Or like, how do I know which list is calling and how do I like, like, what does he mean by that? My guess is how do you segment which list you're cold calling versus which list you're direct mailing? And do they ever like intersect? Oh yeah, we'll, we'll text and call, we'll text mail and call the same list. Cause some people on that list will be very receptive to getting a letter in the mail. Some people will hate getting letters, but they'll love the fact that you text them because they think it's cool. And then some people are just sitting by their phone all day cause they're 85 years old and they're just ready for that telemarketer to say, hey, can I buy your house? So you never know which prospect is gonna be open to the marketing channel, but I've found we had a texting lead come in a couple of weeks ago and he's like, I can't believe you guys texted me. That's so cool. Like, I can't believe you have my number. You guys are, I got all these letters and I threw them out and you're the only one who texted me. And I'm like, I wish everyone said that. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Um, Greg, what would be the best way for our listeners to help support you? Um, great question. I would say if they want to check out my podcast, that is something I, I put my heart and soul into. It's called Pave the Way Podcast. I've had Dan on the show. He had an awesome uh, interview uh, a couple months ago. So they can plug into that podcast, Pave the Way Podcast. They could like search it out on uh, online. Um, and then if they want to follow me on Instagram, I mean, I, I post, I, I have been really quiet online. I've just been so busy with our, our, our real estate business. But if they want to follow me, uh, support me online on Instagram at grego underscore 37. I uh, put out content on there and uh, share some of like my, me, like just doing personal things, not doing business deals, you know, me at the beach or me traveling. So those are the two ways to get plugged in for sure. Uh, and uh, yeah, definitely uh, try to provide as much value as I can. Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate what you put out, man. Thanks, um, man. What uh, one thing, if you could recommend or, or hope that people would take away just one thing from this conversation, what would it be? It, you got to, if you're doing marketing, you have to treat it like a system and you have to be in it for the long run. If they could just take that piece of advice I gave them and, and pretend like they paid us 50 grand to hear that, 
I'm telling you right now, if they if they stay in the game long enough and they hang out with the right crowd, which they're in the right spot here, it, it would be mathematically impossible for them to not make money because it's just you're it, even what do they say? Even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes, <laughs> you know. Like, and I was like, every, we're still blind. Like, I there's so much for me to learn, but like if I send enough mail and I do enough activity and I reflect on that and see what's working, you're you're going to do deals. It's it's just it's math, and it's yeah. it, you have to look at it when you look at it from that angle you have belief in the system because math is absolute. It's not like a, you can't change math. It's factual. So that's, that would be my big takeaway for the listeners. And I, I really think that will help them big time. Yeah. I, with again, about that marketing thing, like I have to agree with you on that. Like every marketing method works. Every. And there's, there's no like special perfect marketing strategy. Like they all work as long as you put enough, time into it you put enough resources into it and you constantly try to make it a little bit better based on the feedback that you're getting exactly and and the same you know on the opposite side of that nothing will work if you don't give it enough time or money or resources or attention oh totally ask me about trying that with ppc i used to be like oh i'm gonna spend like 20 bucks a day and get one lead a day and i was like tripping you know like what am i doing i don't even know ppc i'm gonna turn this off and start mailing direct mail is my bread and butter i'm like why and like when you get good at a marketing channel keep going deeper with that marketing channel like don't read like you don't have to be all over the place like if you're profitable with one channel master that thing and then maybe consider another one but you don't want to be trying to do three four things at once you're you're just going to get frustrated yeah absolutely um all right last one being that this is real estate heroes uh, if you were a superhero, which one would you be? Hmm. Oh, uh, I would say, uh, what is that? Not the Incredible Hulk. I'm too skinny. Uh, Superman. <laughs> Superman. There we go. I want to be Superman, you know, with, with the, you know, the cape or whatever. I feel like that would be my, my number one hero. Yeah, that, that's, that's a classic. That's a good one. Um, awesome. So Greg, man, thank you for being here, sharing your stories and your lessons. I know we're all better for it. I'm super grateful for you. Dude, my pleasure being on the show, man. This was a blast. I really appreciate you both. You guys inviting me to come on here as a guest. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you got value out of this, then please like subscribe, comment, share with your friends. And I also want to make sure that you're able to grow from this. So just pick one thing from today and take action on it right now. As soon as you're done listening, just do that one thing to move in the right direction. Make the call, schedule the meeting, just do something. The only way that you're going to grow is by taking action. So go out and take action. Signing off, this is Dan Bro, along with my co-host, Matt Bruner with the Real Estate Heroes.